informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. Thank you for making us a part of your day today, and what a day it is. A quick look at the grain markets shows some movement there in a normally quiet time of year. We've got corn up five, soybeans up 20 cents on the day. We'll be talking at the end of the show with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing about where this market volatility could go. In segment two today, we're going to talk with Caitlin Glover, the executive director of the Public Lands Council, about the lack of a WOTUS rule from the Biden administration and a look at what came out in the new omnibus funding bill from Congress. In segment three, Ted McKinney, CEO of NASDA, the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, will be joining us. Those state departments have had a very busy year, just got some funding to promote some ag exports, and we're also going to talk about how they're getting ready for the farm bill. Before we dive into all of that, however, this is the holiday season. It's a time of year we sit down and reflect on how we can give back some of our time and talent and treasure to help make the world a better place. It's the reason for the season. And I was thinking about where can we go in agriculture to provide some assistance to our friends and neighbors that that we can see. And there's a great organization out there I've heard so much about, and I'm looking forward to learning more right now, and that's Farm Rescue. If you're not familiar with Farm Rescue, stay tuned. We've got Dan Erdman. He's the Farm Rescue Marketing Program Manager joining now to bring us up to speed. And Dan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. We really appreciate it. You know, let's dive in. For folks who have perhaps not heard of Farm Rescue, Dan, give us the the 10,000-foot view. What is it that your organization does? You bet. Uh, So Farm Rescue is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're dedicated to extending the livelihood of farm and ranch families uh, during times of crisis. So we come in with the equipment and volunteers to to lend a helping hand during planting, haying, harvest, livestock feeding uh, assistance. And uh, again, the whole point is to to get them through that particular season and and hopefully on to the next. And that is so crucial in agriculture. If you're not there doing the work, you're not going to have the products to sell. Dan, can you talk a little bit about how Farm Rescue came to be? What was the impetus for this organization? Well, it's funny you should talk about a 10,000-foot view of the organization. Uh, our, our nonprofit was started by a man named Bill Gross, who is a pilot. And uh, he grew up on a farm in North Dakota. And, and like a, you know, a lot of families, uh, they, they just couldn't make things work. And, and Bill was encouraged to go on to college and, and again, became a, a pilot. He's flown for UPS for, for many years now. Um, and a lot of trips over the ocean and, and across uh, the world here and um, on one of those trips, he was, you know, just making small talk with a co-pilot of his about what their plans were after retirement. And, and Bill said he's always wanted to get a tractor and, uh, you know, go from farm to farm and just be this good Samaritan helping farm families. And, and his co-pilot kind of challenged him back then. That was right around 2005. You know, why wait until retirement to, to do that? And uh, it kind of struck a chord with Bill. And, and that's kind of where the initial seed was planted for Farm Rescue. Um, again, he, uh, he uh, started uh, this nonprofit, and, and it's grown a lot since 2005 when it was first founded. Uh, we're up to seven states. We're about to add an eighth. Uh, and again, those services have grown too. Now, it started with planting in the Dakotas. Um, and again, it's all volunteers. So uh, a pretty small group of volunteers that first year, but word has spread and, and many more people have jumped on board to, to support this mission in the field and financially. 
Um, and, and now, again, we're uh, offering planting, haying, harvest, livestock feeding assistance, and, and adding our eighth state uh, come 2023. And it's incredible. When you think about this has been in existence since 2006, Dan, I believe was the first farm helped. How many different farmers and farm families has Farm Rescue worked with in a time of crisis to get that crop out or get that, that livestock fed? Yeah, so again, it's been a lot of different uh, reasons uh, we're on the farm and a lot of different services provided, but uh, we are planning this spring, it's looking like we will be assisting our 1000th farm family since 2006. So wow. a lot of different, uh, a lot of different families uh, touched by the, the helping hand of farm rescue, and a lot of communities too, because uh, again, every one of those families is important to those rural communities. And uh, so just the, the ripple effect of of what's being done at this organization, the incredible people that we have supporting it uh, has, has truly grown and, and made a tremendous impact for a lot of folks. And Dan, for our audience in particular, the reason I wanted to talk about Farm Rescue is twofold, because you can, if you are a farm family suffering that crisis, you can reach out for help, get some folks to come onto your operation, apply for assistance. Can you talk a little bit about how that process works and how you select the families who end up getting help? Absolutely. So it, it is an application process and, and we try to make it pretty simple because we realize, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress already happening for, for a lot of those folks and, and we don't want to add to that burden through the process. So again, pretty streamlined uh, application process. You can do it right through our website. It's, it's farmrescue.org. Um, uh, again, uh, the three kind of main qualifiers we say are injury, illness, or natural disaster. So if you, if you find yourself going through, uh, you know, ongoing cancer treatments, um, uh, again, farming and ranching are, are, are some of the most dangerous professions uh, on the face of the earth. And, and so there's a lot of accidents that happen no matter how careful you're trying to be out there on the farm. Uh, and so we, we help a lot of folks that have those unexpected injuries. So if you find yourself going through a difficult time like that, Hop on our website, farmrescue.org. You can fill out an application right there. We'd love to, to you know, review that application. It goes to our board of directors. And um, again, when folks are reaching out to us, it's it's always a great need. And, and uh, you know, a very, very vast majority of those that, uh, that apply for assistance are approved for assistance. So uh, we also take referrals because as you might imagine, farmers and ranchers are very prideful people. They don't always uh, wanna ask for that help themselves. So. We rely heavily on, you know, spouses, neighbors, relatives, just people in the community that that have taken notice of a family going through a difficult time or a farmer going through a difficult time. Um, they let us know about that. We can then reach out to them and say, here's what we have to offer. And then once you reach out, once that assistance has been granted and you put the team together, it's those volunteers, Dan, that come in those angels and blue for oh, angels in blue for farm rescue. Can you talk about how folks can sign up to be a volunteer and what that looks like? Absolutely. Again, we we have people that come from all walks of life too. You might imagine uh, we we have a few farmers, uh, current farmers, retired farmers that are out here supporting our efforts in the field and operating that equipment. But not everyone uh, has a background in agriculture. We have military veterans and uh, law enforcement officers, uh, pastors, again, other pilots like our founder and president. Um, we have a rocket scientist that comes up uh, when he can in the spring from uh, from Alabama, works for NASA. So just people of all varieties that come up here. And, and those are some of the, the incredible stories of, of farm rescue and, and the work that's being done is just the folks that are that are offering that hand up. Again, it's not a handout. There's no um, no money handed handed over by anyone. It, it's uh, it's tangible support. We call it a hand up to get them. Absolutely. That season. But yeah, just 
incredible people that are that are out there serving as our boot ground. And again, I say our website is kind of a one-stop shop. Uh, again, you hop on there, click on the volunteer page, and, and you can learn a little bit more about volunteering with Farm Rescue. If it's something you feel called to do, go ahead and sign up. Absolutely, folks. We're always game to help out our neighbors. Farm Rescue is a way to take that agriculture consideration and extend it truly to these other nine states. We've been speaking with Dan Erdman of Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Have a, have a happy holidays and a great Christmas season here. Same to you, sir. And folks, stay tuned. When AOA returns, we are going to talk to the executive producer of the Public Lands Council, Caitlin Glover, about what's going on in D.C. Stay here for more AOA. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. This is Ernie Johnson, Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today. Always plenty of things to discuss. We'll be talking with Caitlin Glover, the Executive Director of the Public Lands Council, here in just a minute. We've talked quite a bit on this program about the new waters of the U.S. rule that the Biden administration has been preparing for some time. Of course, they have been doing this while a case about the waters of the U.S. rule is pending before the Supreme Court. And we were supposed to get the Biden WOTUS today, and uh, I haven't seen it cross my desk yet. We'll see if Caitlin has an update here when we get her connected in just a moment. Before we do that, however, I did want to mention that we are continuing to see movement on an important issue uh, that we have been following for some time, and this is the Mexico-U.S. GMO corn import dispute. A lot of uh, listeners remember that uh, Mexico is planning on January 1st, 2024 to ban the importation of GM yellow corn from the U.S. into that country. This comes from a long-standing concern that the Mexican uh, consumers allegedly have about uh, GMO corn, particularly in human food. They're less concerned about it in livestock. But this has been an ongoing issue. Uh, we've certainly had uh, lots of folks paying attention to this. We've had the national corn growers paying very close attention to this as, as it has been developing. And we're starting to see conversations push them up to the the, the main uh the main level. What we're seeing is the big dogs are starting to get involved. Notably, U USDA uh, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack has been pushing the Mexican government more and more, and the Mexican government has started to respond. Importantly, of course, this time of year, it's tough to get things done. But we're starting to see some progress. The Mexican foreign ministry said late last week, after two officials uh, had discussions in Washington, D.C., that the ministry said they are going to continue in the meantime as these two sides work to come to a, quote, mutual understanding that gives legal certainty to all parties. Now, we don't quite know exactly what that looks like, but we are going to continue to take sides or take uh, take a look at this and it definitely appears as though we're seeing the Mexicans start to pay attention to how this could play out long term. No doubt we'll have uh, probably a little radio silence on this issue as folks disappear for the holidays, but once we return from the new year, no doubt this Mexican GMO issue is going to be there uh, waiting for us when we get back after the new year. In the meantime, however, we are continuing to see things come out of Washington, D.C., and we're seeing th some things not come out of Washington, D.C., notably that proposed WOTUS rule. Joining us now is Caitlin Glover. She's the executive director of the Public Lands Council. And Caitlin, we've been waiting. This new WOTUS rule from the Biden administration, did you get it? So, so Mike, no, good morning. And uh, while we expected to see some, some activity out of the administration on the WOTUS front this week, uh, it, it hasn't appeared, uh, although I think uh, as, as the ghost of Christmas past or, or future or present uh, seems to do this, this time of year, I, I do expect that we're going to see it in, in the coming days. All right. And do we know yet what to expect here? What was EPA's rationale for slowing the rollout of this? 
you know, so so I, I think that this time of year is particularly challenging for the administration when you're coming to the end, sort of a, a natural conclusion of the year, but but also really looking ahead to the turning point from the first two years to the second two years of the administration. That puts the crunch time on a lot of these regulatory activities since the rulemaking process is, is so long, Mike. Uh, and so I, I think that there are a lot of things that are trying to push out the door before uh, the, the holiday season and, and before you know their folks uh, head home for for the New Year holiday, um, it just gets a little bit of a, a backup for some of the agencies. And so you know while I I don't know that necessarily that there's anything particularly telling about the delay, um, what what we are seeing is just a massive rollout of of rules, of draft rules, of guidance documents, and other announcements um, out of the agencies this week. You know, I, I think the other piece of this, too, is that, that Washington is just a very busy time right before Christmas with legislative activity uh, as well. And so, you know, the agencies are, are scrambling on, on a number of fronts. They certainly are. Caitlin, one of the places we've seen a lot of scrambling has been with keeping the government open and getting it funded. We did just get the the text for a massive omnibus bill. Of course, no doubt that is going to take some time to dig through completely. But do we have any initial blushes with what to expect here from this omnibus discussion? Oh, oh, absolutely. So so my team and I here in Washington are combing through the, the more than 4,000 pages uh, that were made available to us uh, early this morning. Uh, and, you know, there there are some good things in here, right? You know, I, I want to first highlight for some of your Western listeners that, that our, our, our legacy, our long-term protection uh, against the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, engaging in listing activities under the Endangered Species Act for sage grouse, that was included. So we were very pleased to see uh, that continue to be included. But, but another one, Mike, that I think is particularly important is what we call the greenhouse gas provision, the reporting writer. Um, that a lot of your listeners, a lot of folks have 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 grown to be um, to sort of expect in these year-end funding packages. Uh, but but it is particularly important because if that provision were not to be included, uh, folks would have to on on ranch on farm would would have to start reporting those greenhouse gas emissions uh, tomorrow. Uh, and and so you know when we're looking at congressional action action at the end of the year, certainly keeping the government open is 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 always a good thing. But it's these smaller provisions that are, are sort of tucked away amongst these 4,000 pages uh, that have real meaning for, for our producers. You know, that is a great point. When you've got 4,000 pages of stuff to dig through, there's a lot that can hide in between the cracks and crevices. That protection from greenhouse gas reporting or emissions reporting. Caitlin, how long is that protection in place? Is it an annual deal with these uh, omnibus bills? You know, that's a great question, Mike, and, and that that's exactly right. So this this is a, a push, a fight, um, and the net initiative that we have every year because when you're looking at provisions, policy provisions like sage grouse, like greenhouse gas reporting, um, even some of the, the prohibitions on other activities, when they're included in these omnibus or in these appropriations legislation, that only that only covers one year. I mean, the, the effective date on, on this bill uh, is the end of the fiscal year. And so we, we have these shorter term protections or these shorter term initiatives um, that, that need to be re-upped every year. This is, you know, this this, this is not a, a unique um, situation. You know, a lot of things sort of hitch a ride on these appropriations bills at the end of every year. Uh, but it does mean that this is something that we talk to Congress about year in and year out, not only to remind them of the value, but, but also to remind them that these provisions are particularly important for our producers. 
They certainly are. Caitlin, uh, we've heard a lot of discussion about funding levels for the agencies, particularly ahead of such a big discussion like the Farm Bill. Are there are there any changes uh, here in this omnibus text that you've read so far with regard to funding levels broadly? Yeah, so so I, I think the interesting thing that is, as we go into farm bill season, the scrutiny on programs at the Department of Agriculture and the EPA um, was was particularly high, especially after we saw Congress make such historic investments, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Fund um, this year. And, and, you know, the administration has really focused on some of these climate smart. Um, and, and I'm saying this in air quotes here, but because a lot of things have been labeled as climate smart programs. Uh, but but those programs are also implicated in, in and authorized in the Farm Bill. Um, as part of this omnibus bill that the Senate will consider and then the House will, will as well, um, we, we are seeing a, a, a slight shift in funding for the EPA. Um, we are seeing some, some more significant investment in, in two pieces of, of legislation that were included in the omnibus, the Growing Climate Solutions Act and the Sustains Act. Um, that, that does direct some funding for supporting registering entities who are providing things like technical assistance for these climate smart actions for um, for producers, uh, technical assistance for those who are engaging in those voluntary carbon markets, um, and, and you know some of these other conservation programs as well. How that plays out in the farm bill is going to be interesting because we do have a, a new majority in the House. Republicans will have the majority in the House, while the Senate will still be controlled by the Democrats. Um, and so this is, you know, at this stage, sure to make those negotiations in the farm bill quite interesting. You know, and that is just on the legislative side, what we've got to look forward to this next year. Caitlin, I know on the regulatory side, we've got some things as well. You mentioned the the Western grazers have some things to keep an eye out. Let's talk briefly about the BLM's revamping of their grazing rules. Do you expect that uh, proposed rule to come out after the new year? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Mike. So, um, I, you know, I, I think a little bit of what I mentioned earlier is that the, the timeline that the agencies are under is is quite short, right? You know, I know two years for the rest of us is, is a long time, but when you look at the Administrative Procedures Act and, and even NEPA, that National Environmental Policy Act, it takes an incredibly long time for something to go from a draft rule to a final rule and implementation. Um, so, so the agencies are under an immense amount of pressure to get some of these draft rules, like the Bureau of Manage Land Management Grazing Regulations, um, out in the first quarter of 2023 so that they can publish a final rule before the end of this administrative term, this presidential term. And, and so, you know, the, the BLM has sort of pushed the timeline six or seven times, um, but we have, we, we do expect to see BLM grazing regulations, at least in draft form, first quarter of 23. All right, folks, if you're a grazer, pay attention. That draft is the time to get in and make those comments. We've been speaking with Caitlin Glover, the Executive Director of the Public Lands Council. And Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Ted McKinney, CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. Stay here. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, 
your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, it appears the holiday malaise type of trade is settling in low volume action, but that low volume could lead us to some volatility here and there. And we're seeing some positive volatility on the day Tuesday so far with uh, the soybean complex seeing a good pop with strength in bean meal and beet oil, providing support with corn and wheat up moderately. We saw overnight strength into the day session in KC and Minneapolis wheat, and that is continuing here as well as we see just looking at thin holiday trade and and thin markets can lead to some of this volatility one direction or another and that's probably a main explanation for why we're seeing this positive move to the upside being amplified by some of those computers and algorithm trading now we're watching exports of course closely china soybean buying sold last week to just 10 cargoes with a good chunk of that going to south america january cargoes though uh, coming from the united states here and a lot of folks are, it appears, are just seeing that the Chinese must believe there'll be a good timely availability of new crop supplies out of Brazil for some of their February and March shipment, hence why they're lighting up those cargoes from Brazil. But we watched the soybean export pace and ex- soybean exports from the U.S. expected to tail off the weeks ahead along with shipments. But will we see corn pickup? That's going to be a big question here that we're going to be watching closely heading into the final couple weeks here and into the new year. Livestock trade relatively lower, mixed to lower on the session on Tuesday as uh, traders are hopefully, uh, presumably going to try and get some cash business done in both cattle and hogs early this week before they head out for the holiday. But we do have a cattle on feed and quarterly hogs and pigs report coming up on Friday that traders are keeping one eye on. Outside markets are quiet. The Dow up just slightly and crude oil up about 1%. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell. Everything's changed at this time. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today, and what a day it is. 
quick look at the trade. We've got corn up five to six cents, and we've got soybeans up 22 to 23 cents here. In the nearby, we'll be talking with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing here in segment four. But before we do that, we're going to talk with Ted McKinney. Of course, a lot of you know Ted. He formerly served as the USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agri-Affairs. Now he serves as the CEO of NASDA, the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. And Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Happy holidays. Well, thank you, sir. And let's talk about ag trade. NASDA recently received some funding for the Emerging Markets Program to get out there and help move ag products. Ted, can you fill us in on what what's NASDA going to be doing with this funding? I can. Well, first of all, the EMP, or Emerging Markets Program Fund, is just a terrific but understated program. Usually, it doesn't get the number of requests from all of us, people like me, to uh, to to do its its work, and yet this year it was oversubscribed. So we're in good friendly competition with some others about emerging markets. To answer your specific question, it has long been a view the, of our directors, secretaries, and commissioners of ag. These would be the leaders of the state departments of ag that they love trade. They love taking those mid to small sized businesses to various trade shows and countries to do business uh, do that well the commodity groups are outstanding represented all over the world but in it, when it comes to policy what's right and wrong with policy it's been a missing link i traveled 490,000 international air miles and oftentimes wished there were two or three or four more people like me well, we're not going to go take the job of USTR or our USDA friends, not at all. That's their job. But we can sure, sure bring it alive because many of our members are closer to the farms, sometimes farmers themselves. So we'll be making treks to four countries next year. Vietnam is up the second week in January. In March, it's Thailand. In August, it is um, Indonesia, and we're fitting Kenya of Africa in there somewhere. And we'll do this for the next three or four years, we hope, all in the spirit of building trust, doing some myth-busting. Biotech's always a good example where you've got to break up some myths that have been established, and otherwise trying to open the doors of trust so that they understand why we produce the way we do and the value of that. So it's exciting. It certainly is. And Ted, it's an issue that I'm guessing hits pretty close to your heart with the time you spent promoting foreign ag trade to now have this opportunity to get back to those places and continue that uh, that drive is huge. And I notice of the four places you're targeting, three are in Asia. Is that a growth area that, that you're excited about long term? It is. And let me just say that uh, in my interview process for this job, it was the board that wanted very much to do more internationally. And Yes, it's true. There seemed to be a good fit here, but uh, uh, I want to give them the credit. I, I'm just a happy warrior to uh, to fulfill the wishes. And yes, of course, I loved what we did, and I saw the value in that. Uh, it's really interesting. Two-thirds of my travel back in the day was to Asia Pacific. So we had the right strategy, and I commend the current administration for branding it as the Indochina strategy, suggests that never mind the politics, ag sort of looks and thinks together on this. And oh my goodness, the opportunities are there, um, including China, or if you exclude it, if you want all of those parts of the world, 
is where there is a lot of business to be had. And I know they want access to our markets as well. So you try to seek a two-way trade. That's always the best. Africa Absolutely. has been left alone for far too long, so we've got to get there too. Yes, indeed we do. And Ted, as you watch this move out over the next couple of years, it will be fascinating to see these new connections grow and hopefully lead to some, some new realms of influence for American agriculture. But I want to bring the focus back to domestic policy. Of course, you work with sure. the, as you mentioned, directors, secretaries, and commissioners of agriculture all across this country, and the ag industry is so varied. There are a number of different challenges. What are some of the issues that these states' Department of Agriculture are grappling with across the country as we round out 2022? Oh my, they're they're varied and unfortunately seem to be growing. But let me uh, let me walk through some of them. Clearly, there's always pestilence and disease. So how do you address weed problems or insect problems or fungi in the fields? And that's where biotech and other technologies come in. Uh, in animal disease, there's always either a threat that's real. Can you spell high path avian influenza or those those that might be threatening, like Africa swine fever or foot and mouth disease, hoof and mouth disease in the livestock industry. So there are those. Uh, we too are very much in that conservation and climate resiliency space. So that's one of our top 10 priorities like the two I just mentioned for the farm bill. And then you get into ag research, uh, cybersecurity, food safety is always at the fore, and the list goes on. So it's, it's never a dull moment in the departments of ag. And then you just have to prioritize. And we try to do that as best we can. You know, prioritize. And I would imagine, Ted, there's some networking that happens within an organization like NASDA. I think of HBAI, as you mentioned, and that has impacted so many different states across the Midwest. Is NASDA a way for these folks to get together and share best practices amongst one another? Yes, in some cases. I'll tell you, the, the ag community uh, in and outside of D.C. is just terrific. You talk about a collegial group that all pull the rope in the same direction. It's rare when uh, there's differences of opinion. And if there are, you sort of work those out in advance. So that's a good, good foundational start. But yes, because we transcend all issues, I think Farm Bureau maybe I'm missing one or two, uh, are the only ones that would cover all ag issues uh, on the farm and up the chain. Uh, we oftentimes do find uh, people, uh, you know, beating a path to our door, and we welcome that. We look through the eyes of a farmer and rancher first, second, and third, and if they're doing fine, then usually everyone else is doing fine. So we do find ourselves coming together. The fact that we're quasi-regulatory also does that. I mean, the states do implement federal laws and regulations, and though we always want to be educating first and regulating second, it does give us a platform to hear out people who have uh, uh, views they want to express. So we, we love the space we're in very much. That is great. And Ted, you mentioned the quasi-regulatory state departments of ag are tasked with, of course, enforcing and putting into place a lot of the mechanisms proposed in D.C. And this next year, we're likely going to get a lot. NASDA, of course, being truly nonpartisan. You've got folks from all different uh, colors of the political right. spectrum in, in office there. What's the discussion look like ahead of the farm bill for an organization like NASDA? Well, so far, the whole farm bill discussion has come together nicely. I'll pick the climate resiliency that got an early start. There's a, there's a coalition called the Food and Ag Climate Alliance here in D.C., and all the right members, the commodity groups are members. 
And gosh, did the group come together on things that unify us all. And that has been a great thrust and the initial thrust. So let's check that box in pencil. It's not done yet. Ink comes later. Uh, and so it's a good example. We have our own list of 10 priorities. We tend not to jump out in front on the Title I or all the commodities. That's what the commodity groups are for. Now, we're right there as a close second, uh, a wingman, as you might say, a best friend, a best man, because uh, we believe in those too. But we pick up on things that might be more emerging and different. So that's why I said cybersecurity, hemp, invasive species, local food systems, is space that doesn't often get covered, but is very important to the states and to departments of ag and to all of ag. So we tend to focus a little more on those all the while supporting the heavy lift that comes with commodity groups. Indeed, it does take a teamwork to get this thing across the finish line. Ted, with your friends in Washington, D.C., are, are you still expecting to see a farm bill here in 2023, or is that going to be a tough row to hoe? Well, it's always tough. Uh, the, the statistics are not in our favor of a completion by the fall of 2023. But hey, hope springs eternal. And we are all, all the commodity groups, all the ag groups are working toward the deadline that is set in law. If Congress needs to delay that, uh, and there's usually good reasons for that, then so be it. We'll work with that. It's funny, the 2018 Farm Bill, by most accounts, both Democrats and Republicans was viewed as a pretty good farm bill. The differences now are we're post-COVID and there's lots of wringing of hands that comes from things like that. It, it brought along a lot of spending. Some would say good, some would say bad. And so we'll work on that. And there are newer members to the House and Ag committees that have a very different interest than, than, uh, than production agriculture. They may be much more into SNAP and WIC women, infants, and children, and the nutrition programs. Okay, that's the unholy alliance that people always talk about, but it's got to stay together. And we're optimistic in the end that we will get one because we have to get one. It's just a matter of what form it takes, what kinds of turns it might take. But we're still optimistic in the production ag and the world of farming and, and ranching. We are still optimistic that we'll get there on a pretty good farm bill, sir. Well, that is certainly good to hear. State Department of Ags, do they receive much funding through the farm bill negotiation process? Um, not so much. Uh, we, our, our state, we don't, the, the NASDA doesn't, but our state departments of ag uh, usually get specialty crop block grant funds. We have a lot of pass-through funds, so things like the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is a produce and animal feed-related area, would come through pass-through grants and the like, but very little direct funded, and that's okay. It is. Folks, we have been talking with Ted McKinney, currently serving as the CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, or NASDA. And uh, Mr. McKinney, thank you so much for joining us today. Best for you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk about those ag markets we're going to be trying to sell more of overseas with our friend Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing when AOA returns. Stay here for more AOA. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, 
you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Aaron Rogge, Senior Product Manager, CHS Refined Fuels Marketing, to learn more about the new Cenex Premium Diesel Formula. Let's talk, why is Cenex changing its premium diesel formula, and why now? The next generation of Cenex Premium Diesel has honestly been a long time coming. It's been 10 years since we last updated our robust comprehensive additive package for our Cenex Premium Diesel Fuels. And in that time, we've seen an evolution within engine technology to meet uh, ever-increasing requirements for emission standards, as well as a desire to increase fuel economies. So Aaron, let's talk a little bit about what has changed in the formula. Well, the great news is that this product enhancement really is an evolution. So it, we didn't take anything away. We still have the seven additives within our package that provide that enhanced performance. What we did do is we basically you know, moved a few levers and we increased the values of some of those additives to just provide enhancements and some new claims and differentiators. Probably the rock star of the package is our advanced aggressive detergency. And what we've gained through that is better control overall, a cleaner environment for the combustion of the fuel, we're better, uh, we're better managing water. Uh, we have enhanced the filtrability and improved the biostability of the product. And we've reaped the benefits that are provided to the exhaust after treatment system. So really just up the game overall. Aaron Rogi, Senior Product Manager at CHS Refined Fuels Marketing. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. And what a day it is. We've been talking about the expected low-volume, boring trade in the commodity markets this week as traders leave for the holiday vacation. But this year, or this t- today, rather, turned things on its head. We're seeing a bit of a rally, and to break things down, we're joined now by Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing in South Dakota. Dwayne, thanks for joining the show today. Oops, apologies, Dwayne. Hey, welcome for, for to the show. Certainly appreciate you joining us today, Dwayne. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. I, I sound a lot better when I'm not on mute, I guess. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> not a problem, sir. Let's talk about what's happening here in the soybean market. Quiet trade overnight seemed to kind of go wild today. What's moving the markets? It, it did. Um, a little bit of a change in forecast. You know, we probably should back up and talk about yesterday's trade. We were down yesterday because some rains expected for the end of this week for Argentina and possibly some more next week as well. So, you know, the guys sold the market yesterday. But this morning, like a typical weather market, has flipped just a little bit and still rains on the forecast, but a little drier. And maybe the trade realizing that, you know, one rain isn't going to break up the drought in Argentina. So, a lot of buying interest right off the technical support of the 20-day moving average, too. And, and maybe China's in there buying the dip like they did a couple of weeks ago again. It's, like you said, I was expecting pretty low-volume, quiet session here, but uh, it's been kind of busy this morning. Dwayne, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit on the South American soybean situation. We've talked a lot about the drought in Argentina. No doubt, as you mentioned, it's been moving markets. But just to the north, of course, that soybean crop in Brazil continues to grow. At the end of the day, is what Brazil's going to produce going to outweigh the, the decline of the soybean crop in Argentina? You know, it, it might. You've got a great point. You know, and Brazil raises about three times the amount of soybeans as Argentina does. So that that's the country we really need to see the drought get into to really establish a rally and get well over that $15 mark that we want to see everyone holding beans. Um, but to answer your question, I don't know if it fully does. Get, one thing we always do in Brazil, and this is probably partly from CONAB, who's their USDA uh, office, they always set the bar so high in Brazil that it seems like it's kind of at a record yield and a record production right away. And then we trim it down as you know, weather turns out to not be completely perfect. So it, yeah, it might in the end, but we already have the bar set very high for Brazil. Indeed we do. Dwayne, is the trade starting to ratchet down the Brazil crop size expectations, at least on this first soybean crop, or do things still look pretty good? 
I still look pretty darn good. It is just a little dry in the southern parts of Brazil, you know, the closest to where the Argentina drought is. So there's concern with that. And, you know, yes, during the next two weeks, we got this thin volume holiday trade. We need to watch that weather closely because if that flips from yesterday's forecast and gets drier in Brazil, well, then you've got a story that could spike the market because there's not everyone there to sell it on the other side of it. So we'll, we'll still be here and it'll be an interesting couple of weeks for sure. It certainly will. Dwayne, are we seeing anything interesting develop on the basis front? Severe weather winter storm across most of the Dakotas this past week, pending winter storm across the eastern Corn Belt coming this week. What's basis doing across the countryside? It really depends on the location. You can literally see which location is a little bit short bought and improve their basis 10 or 15 cents just last week alone. But yet farmers see this weather coming and boy, trucks are kind of moving a little bit knowing I got to get this grain out before the storm moves and then they'll be you know probably done for the year. So uh, it very seems to be site specific right now. If they're short, they had to bump up the bid a little bit. If they're fine, they haven't moved yet. All right, Dwayne, on the grain markets, as you look at the news situation today, any other factors you're keeping an eye on that we need to watch for these markets? You know, no, the biggest thing for the next two weeks is the the weather in Argentina and southern Brazil, of course. We'll be watching that close. Other than that, yeah, the trade is just kind of in this, you know, the same technical area we've been at, which is nice to see very good support under the market. You know, 650 corn at 14. 85 to 1490 beans is a resistance up top. I don't know if we can break any of the resistance quite yet, but uh, unless we get a little bit more of a weather scare in South America. So, but, uh, you know, backing up two weeks, I really like that when the market did dip, we saw a commercial buying on the corn futures and we saw China step in and buy our soybeans. So that's really good underlying support. I like to see his more of a long-term bull. Yes, indeed. That long-term bull, Dwayne, you have had those bulls on in this cattle market for, for at least the past six months. Are you still pretty bulled up on where cattle can go from here? I am. I am. And obviously this market can't just go straight up. No market should. That's not a good sign either. We had a little dip in feeders yesterday and Jan feeders specifically, and they dipped on the opening and quickly reversed higher again here. A really good sign of a strong, healthy market. I think we had to dip back because the cash market on the feeder side, which is just a little bit softer. Um, if you call 180 being soft, Mike, it's still a very good market. The blizzard that came through up here really packed snow into these feedlots, and it, it's been taking some time to clean them out. So I don't think anyone wanted to go out and buy new supplies to come and fill those pens. But as they're getting cleared out now, I look for that cash market to get pretty white hot, especially after the holiday season. So look for a nice, nice spike. Maybe we can get over that 190, I think, in the January feeders yet. All right, 190 in January, currently sitting just shy of 184. A little bit of a rally expected there. Dwayne, on the live cattle side, this blizzard impact, both the last week's and this current week's expected blizzard, what do you think is that's going to do to the, the cash cattle price? I It's kind of hard to say a little bit, you know, because it, it's just logistically hard to move cattle in a blizzard obviously heck i just have a hard time getting myself to town <laughs> so i understand moving cattle across the country can be a little difficult so if the packers short bought they'll pay up for whatever supplies they can get locally and and if they've got enough supplies then they'll just drop their bids all together so but what it will do mike is it's going to keep good support under that cash market because we're not gaining a lot of weight in a blizzard obviously and these frigid cold temps take that much more feed to just maintain i don't think any cattle are bringing, gaining weight here this week for sure so overall it's a bullish thing when it comes to the live cattle market
All right. Bullish outlook on the live cattle market. Dwayne, does that bullish attitude extend how far into 2023? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess I'm going to just call it just bullish and we'll see where we go. I mean, it, you and I have talked before about the recession and if my gut is right and it's not that bad, well, we could look at all time highs for cattle again. But, you know, if, if the economy struggles, then, you know, somewhere in between and you know, I'm bullish the cattle market, but I'm going to remind all the listeners too. cattle seem to be something that, you know, just as we all get bullish, then something happens, whether it's pink slime or something. So, you know, maybe look out to that next winter contracts and, you know, on some LRP, some coverage there maybe isn't a horrible idea when we get a little Not bit more of idea, folks. That's the Wayne Bussey. Stick around or tune in tomorrow for more AOA. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.